And I remember one night I was leaving um, work and I had the numbness and stuff. And I like managed to crawl to my car. It was right. I was, I could see my car and I had to like crawl yeah. through it. I crawled to my car and then I get my car, sit there for a while. And I'm like, this is just not right. Beyond Ourselves is a podcast where I, Taylor Camille, share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives. For season one of this series, we are highlighting women of color, and more often, Black women, whose health needs are frequently looked over and stories seldom shared. Today we are speaking with Victoria Reese about her journey with multiple sclerosis. The Multiple Sclerosis Society estimates that there are 2.3 million people living with MS globally, with more than 200 new cases diagnosed in the U.S. each week. In addition, a 2013 study published in Neurology found that Blacks had a 47% increased risk of MS compared with Whites. It also found that Black women had triple the risk of MS compared with their male counterparts. Victoria has created a nonprofit organization, We Are Ill. Its mission is to redefine what sick looks like and to bring about community in places where Black women especially don't often find one. It was hard to keep this under 30 minutes, so forgive me for the additional 10, but our conversation was very fruitful. Her path to developing this nonprofit is really inspirational, and the fact that she created something when she saw that there was nothing there. And right now she's pregnant, amidst COVID, amidst the Black Lives Matter movement, and she still carved out some time to speak with me. So I hope you'll enjoy. I'm Victoria Reese. I am based in Los Angeles, but from Detroit, Michigan. I am a MS warrior or AKA like a black girl with MS is what I call myself. I was diagnosed with a relapsing remitting MS in 2012 and I've been trying to advocate for black girls with MS ever since. And what do you do for work? I'm a brand manager. I own my own company, Victor Group. So I do a little bit of everything. (laughs) It's funny because it's hard to put in a box, but I'm a creative by heart. But as far as brand management, I do a lot of consulting. I help small businesses and even major corporations sculpt and develop their brand and sometimes rebrand or re-strategize what they're doing. And sometimes events fall in there. So brand activations um, and things like that. So a little bit of everything, but I'm a brand manager. (laughs) yeah there's so many different avenues that that can go into (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you kind of touch everything yeah and so how would you textbook version describe multiple sclerosis I would just say that it is an autoimmune illness that affects your brain and spine and it's when your body um, is attacking itself so the nerves in your body are, are attacking itself I would say that to someone who doesn't know most of the lingo. (laughs) Right. And what's the definition you've adapted for yourself? How would you describe what you experience? I say that it's a snowflake disease, meaning Mm -hmm. it's different in everybody. So like a snowflake, there's no specific pattern to a snowflake. Every snowflake looks different. I mean, that's exactly how MS is. Like you will literally If you go to a support group meeting, you will see someone in a wheelchair, someone with a cane, someone who is wearing high heels, and someone who can't see in one eye. So you have these different 
symptoms that affect may affect you differently. Everyone right. doesn't deal with the same thing. So that is the unique yet super scary thing about MS because you just don't know how it will affect you. Right. Yeah, that is really scary. And I mean, probably does that lead to a hard time diagnosing because they don't know how it presents itself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. MS is one of the most misdiagnosed illnesses out there because it is no one shoe size fits all. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's my mom says this about health, like it's like a car. <laughs> like when your car has a problem, the mechanic doesn't actually know what one thing, like the one thing it is. It could be four things. So they really? go inspect it and see what's going on. Well, MS, it could be, you know, it's 25 different things that could be MS. That could be something else too. And so it's really hard to get diagnosed. I experienced that, but I know people... I didn't go that long with a misdiagnosis, but I know people that went years, like years, because they used to say that black people didn't get MS. So right. we, you know, I guess our people went through that misdiagnosis for a while. And then even after they discovered that black people were getting it, it still was hard to diagnose because you're, you know, doctors are thinking it's one thing and, you know, perhaps not listening to their patients. Right. So what led to your diagnosis? What were some of the symptoms you were experiencing before they landed on, you know, oh, you have MS? Yeah. So I had one of the symptoms that people really identify with as far as they pair it with MS and it was numbness and tingling in my legs. Mm -hmm. I was out of the blue experiencing it and it was just like an advanced, like my leg falling asleep. But it would last longer and it would happen at times that don't belong. Like if I'm sitting down for a long time, then maybe my leg, in a certain position, maybe my leg will fall asleep. I won't be surprised. But if Mm -hmm. I'm walking and I've been walking for 10 minutes and then my leg goes to sleep and it's numb, that's not normal. So it would happen like that. And more often it kept happening, like just more often and then it would happen in both legs and then I would have to like crawl to my car or something like it would just happen at horrible times so that was what was happening to me and when you in LA at that time like working I was I had just moved to LA that year so I was nine months into LA when this happened so new city new job new life new illness and what were you doing for work when you got to LA I was working at William Morris Endeavor Entertainment, which is a world-renowned talent agency for celebrities where they, you know, do the booking. And mm-hmm. that was something, a dream job of mine. And I got into a very competitive program, which is their agent trainee program. It was a very stressful job. Yeah, I'm familiar. I was on a desk at ICM. Um, I didn't get into the agent trainee program. They were like, yeah you don't fit. (laughs) So so I commend you on that. But that's a tough time to then have this flare up too. You're juggling this really intense, demanding job. Mm -hmm. And then your body's just not in tune with you. Well, I think the stress of the job is what triggered it and and let it show itself. Uh With MS, well, because I'm pregnant now, I have these pregnancy apps, and it shows you when certain things in the body is de- starts to form in the in the baby. So mm-hmm. around like I want to say like week 19 or something, I could be wrong, but it's when the myelin 
starts to form in the brain. And that is, um, myelin is basically the problem with your brain when you have MS, when you're in the womb. So it makes me wonder if you get diagnosed in your 20s, did you always have MS? You know, you don't catch it. So did right. you always have it and, it and it waited to show itself? You know, I, I wonder that all the time. So I'm thinking that I, I always had it, but this was a time in my life where I was stressed to the point where I had a flare up and I had never <laughs> experienced that much stress before. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So did you end up leaving because of it or? I did, but not because of it. I think, I mean, everything to me happens in a timely fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did leave after that. I chose to leave because I had to kind of pivot. Like I didn't pivot my entire life, but I had to pivot stressors. I had to pivot Mm -hmm. and say, okay, my health comes first and what, are some things that I don't need. And I don't need a job. I don't need anybody's job, you know? And, and I don't need this kind of job where, <laughs> where right. hazing, you know, being hazed is a part of the norm. Like, mm-hmm. I need, you know, a job, okay, but I don't need a job where unnecessary stress is a part right. of the program. So Makes I, me feel like I'm worthy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, if I have self-inflicted stress because of work, because I want to get a project done or something, that's one thing. But for a job where the culture is to have that corporate work haze on purpose for you to prove yourself, that didn't serve me anymore if my health was um, something that was prioritizing. And then my health, you know, stress is a trigger for flare-up. So I was like, okay, what stresses me out? Okay, job. <laughs> and then like, what else stresses me out? This guy? Okay, bye. <laughs> like, so it was like, I got to figure out, you know, what's important and what's not. So I, I did leave shortly after and got another job. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> so did you receive your diagnosis while you were still at the talent agency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was... On my desk, when I decided I was going to go to the doctor, I was letting it slide like for a few months because it wasn't happening all the time, but it would happen mm-hmm. at work all the time. And I remember one night I was leaving um, work and I had the numbness and stuff and I like managed to crawl to my car. It was right. I was, I could see my car and I had to like crawl yeah. through it. I crawled in my car. And then I get my car, sit there for a while. And I'm like, this is just not right. So I call my mom and I had like a migraine or something. I call my mom and tell her and my migraine gets so bad. And that night I was going to hang out with my friend, Sunny. So I was going to her house on the phone with my mom. And I'm like, this migraine is so excruciating. And I didn't get migraines. And I was like, I can't even really see to drive. So by the time I got to my friend Sunny's house, I parked outside and I texted her while I'm on the phone. My mom, I'm like, I'm outside, but I can't even come in right now because my hair hurts so bad. I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to go home or what, because I'm suffering out here. So I sat and I, I waited a while. My mom stayed on the phone with me. I managed to go to the gas station, get like a Tylenol, some water. It didn't work. Obviously, it would take a while to set in anyway, but I managed mm-hmm. to get home. And this migraine that I never would get lasted all night. And this is like 8 o'clock. It lasted to the next morning. I remember my roommates at the time bringing me, they would wet a washcloth, put it in the freezer, and then bring it to me 
all night because I was just in that much pain. So I woke mm-hmm. up and then one side of my face was numb. And I was like, this is crazy. This, And then, then I, like an hour later, I realized numbness and numbness, like numbness in my legs and numbness in my face. So at that point, I'm like, okay, this is, I had already been to the doctor, but at that point, I'm like, I got to go back because they're not seeing something. Like, I need to go back. So I had to call up work, obviously, and tell my, or tell the HR person I wasn't coming in, that I was having some health issues and I needed to figure out what it was. So when I went back to the doctor, they basically had me get an MRI, call me back super quickly with the results. And then I went back to the doctor for them to tell me that they thought it was MS. So I was at work dealing with all of this. Jesus. Yeah, it was so crazy. I would have just cried. I would have just I cried. You did. Absolutely. Yeah. Because when you think of MS, so first when they told me MS, it didn't quite ring a bell. The MS part did, but not multiple sclerosis. It was MS. And I remember a friend, a childhood friend of mine, her mom had MS and mm-hmm. she was in a wheelchair and she mm-hmm. was not like doing well. And yeah. that's what I associated my future to be like immediately. So of course I cried because I'm like, I don't know what's about to happen. And when you get MS, there's four types of MS. So you've got your relapsing, your mitting, and then the le- the fourth one, it's like it goes up to secondary progressive. And the progressive is very telling. It means that you steadily progress from the time you get diagnosed, worse and worse. So you don't know if you're going to be, when you first get it, they don't know. They can't tell you if you have secondary progressive. They can only tell you that you have MS, and then they see what you have. You know, so I didn't know if I was going to have relapsing rating or primary progressive or secondary progressive. So I was scared that my life would change drastically immediately and didn't know right. what to expect. So can you move through those or usually when you get one type, that's the type that you have? Move through because they're they're trying to gauge what which one you have. Mm. So only time will tell that. So if, if my doctor diagnosed me today and says, oh, you have relapsing remitting, and then in two months I'm continuing to progress, they may say, okay, well, you have this one, you know, and then three years later, if it keeps going, then they may. So I think it's just something that only time will tell. Right. So it could get worse. It could get better. It could, your symptoms could vary type of thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And how, how old were you when you got diagnosed? 25. They gave me a pamphlet about MS and I couldn't read it for like six months. Couldn't get past like three sentences because it would make me cry or make mm-hmm. me nauseous. I would get sick in my stomach. And that was me not being ready to accept it. I had to first, so my my primary care physician told me that I had MS because they couldn't officially diagnose me because they're just a PCP, which is your primary care physician, but they could tell me that this was strongly felt like this was it. And that, you know, my symptoms and my MRI results aligned with MS. So it was very likely that it was MS. And they wanted me to go to a specialist or a neurologist. So I went to a neurologist and that was when I was able to get officially diagnosed with MS shortly after. Mm. And what did you find or what have you found to be most important when you're looking for a doctor? Because I think that's the hardest part is like 
finding someone that you trust, finding someone who knows your body, finding someone who's going to do the extra work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did that look like trying to find the proper care? So I think for me in particular, you know, that's a journey. Becoming a almost expert patient, <laughs> it's a mm-hmm. journey because the reg- the average American with regular health is only going to the doctor for the common cold. They're not going to a specialist doctor like a neurologist. They're not going as often. They're not going for so many MRIs and types of tests and blood work. They don't have to understand the lingo. They're not dealing with insurance and co-pays and they're not dealing with assistant payment programs. Like the average person is not dealing with this. So you actually are, it's like getting hazed again, (laughs) but you're, you're joining a fraternity of (laughs) people who have a condition and you learn as you go and you get better as you go. If you want to get better, if you don't want to be stressed out all the time. So finding a doctor, you've got to find what you're looking for in a doctor and and learn what type of patient you are. Right. So the more educated you are as, as a patient, the more you're not just walking in there and being told stuff and then walking out and feeling either deflated or uninformed or scared or like they're not listening. So I think patient advocacy is something that I have really dived into because I realized that when I first learned the word patient advocacy, I thought it was like, we're just fighting for patients rights and that they're heard and this is what the patient needs but being a patient advocate is more than that it's actually when you're able to learn how to advocate for yourself and that Mm -hmm. you learn that doctors they work for you and Mm -hmm. they can be wrong because they are human and that they have to listen to you and sometimes they give up very easily and they tell you what's going on with your body And then you're left being misdiagnosed or something or not heard. And we know that that happens with Black women all the time. For some reason, I mean, we don't even need to get on that. But for some reason, (laughs) the healthcare system or people or society rather thinks that Black people or Black women are stronger. We are. But I forgot the statistics on it. But let's say I'm in pain and there's a white woman in pain. We could describe it the same, but... The white woman only has to say it once to get the strongest medicine, but the black woman has to say it four or five times to get the strongest medicine because we can deal with it. We're seeming to have dealt with it. So it's a weird thing. I I, I know it's racial bias and stuff, but I don't even know why anybody in their mind, (laughs) racial bias or not, why they would think that one person, because of their color or whatever, could handle Mm -hmm. something more than the other person. But it happens. But Patient advocacy is a lot about you and learning what you need to know about your own illness and learning how to listen to your body and learning how to speak up for yourself and say, no, I want this, or I I learned about this. This is what I want. Or test me again. Or no, I think it's something else. I don't feel right. This feels very scary. I'm what, you know, like being able to speak up for yourself. So that has been a big deal as far as looking for a doctor to your initial question. So I didn't, have a great relationship with my doctor. I was just going to my doctor because my doctor knew my story, you know, and I felt very comforted in that. He was the person who diagnosed me. He knew 
the different medicines I took to find the right one for me. So that was something that I was just kind of being loyal. He listened to me, but it was like, we weren't like buddies. It was just, um, I felt like I, I did feel like I wanted someone who was a woman and who was younger. He's kind of old. Um, mm-hmm. And neurologists see patients with MS. They see people with Alzheimer's too. So mm-hmm. he had a lot of patients with Alzheimer's and not MS. So I just, I mean, it, he was cool, but I, I went more because I felt like he knew my story and I liked that. I felt comforted in that. I recently switched doctors to someone who I met because I work now in the MS community. And I actually met her not as my doctor. I met her as a doctor in the, you know, in the space. And we built a relationship and she was an MS specialist. So she not only is a neurologist, but she specializes in MS and really focuses only on those types of patients. So I'm going to her and she's younger and we got along and I wanted to have someone who could really relate to who I was like a modern day woman with this illness. So I think is all she of the, too? no, she's not. Unfortunately, I, I'm super close to a black MS specialist, Dr. Mitzi Williams, who would be my doctor if she lived in California, but she's in Georgia. Oh, um, but She's cool. My doctor's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I mean, it makes a world of difference. And it's interesting on the point of racial bias. It's surprising to me that it still persists. It's just aggravating to know that so many women, so many Black people have that story that, like, I wasn't listened to. So when you were seeking community, though, I know you've made We Are Illmatic. What were you looking for? And I, I think in the YouTube video, you mentioned that you weren't finding spaces with people that looked like you, with people that were Black living with MS. So what were you looking for when you were seeking support or resources? And what did you find? Yeah. So I was just looking like, I don't even know, maybe because everybody looked white when I was Googling stuff. It would just be like the articles, you know how they'll use up one photo in the stock photo. It's just... It's obviously a stock photo and they can't control who's in it. It was just very telling of like who wrote it or who they thought had it. They just didn't care about me when they were writing it because I was not seen. The articles would be like older white women. And if you did manage to find a a black person, it would be an older black woman or older black man or something. And I was just like, I'm 25 and I'm... I had blonde hair at the time. I'm over here trying to be cute. Like, <laughs> I I just needed something where I felt like it talked to me. It spoke to me. And it wasn't all about looks. It was information. And it was 2012. And they had little information about how MS affected African-Americans. Even on the National MS Society website. It was a few sentences. And at that time, I remember specifically the last study that had been done was 1990 and it was 2012 and it was like a little, little paragraph about African-Americans with MS and I knew looking about looking at how it affected us. So I started to just seek community. I had and still have big plans for my future. And that was the one thing that I felt very determined to have somewhat of control over. Or to be like, okay, if I got to restructure and pivot and my future is going to be different, let me look, get a glimpse of what it's going to look like or what it might look like. And so I was just looking 
to find more information. I wasn't finding the information. Then I wasn't seeing any articles that looked like myself. So then mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let me look on social media for different pages or something like that. Same, same, same. All boring, don't resonate, white people, like, <laughs> just not me. So then no. I'm like, okay, let me, I was into social media, just like I'm into it now. And I reached out to the MS Society to say that I wanted to like work with them and create content around having MS and stuff like that. So I did a few things maybe or something with them. And then I just started to work closer and closer with them. And it still was like, even when, if I went to the MS offices, I became an ambassador for them, go to the MS offices, all white people, or like go to the events, all white people. And then I told them, Yo, look, like there's this one lady um, named Sarah that worked with them. She did, she no longer works with them, but we hit it off. She was, she was like a hippie and she was white, but she, I felt very comfortable talking to her about where are the black people. And like, I'm trying to talk mm-hmm. to the black people. I'm trying to learn. And she saw the issue as well. And she helped fight for me. So she walked in the room and she was like, I'm going to talk to everybody. She called a meeting. The next meeting had the president of the chapter there, the social media person. Oh, like, boy. I'm not listening to her, you know? So she pulled some strings for me and she advocated for me and she got stuff done for me. And I, I'm forever indebted to her because I didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody about it. But she was like, you don't have to say a word. I'll say it, you know? And yeah. then, even though I was snitching, clearly. <laughs> she let me snitch, and then she didn't make me feel like a snitch. She spoke up. So then yeah. after that, I started to work more with them, but still, it was, I told them my, my goals was to do something more focused towards African-Americans. They they put me in touch with different people that in different states that worked for the MS Society that were supposed to be over the, well, first, it was one person, and the, the, like, category she worked over was all people of color so she was working on asian hispanic and black and grouped them together oh so, um, so she was not really feeling my ideas either so then right. my mom came to that meeting with me with that lady she happened to be in town my mom was like you're gonna have to do something yourself you can't yeah. sit around and wait you know i just felt like well how can i take on a beast you know, as big as this and, you know, the MS Society had been around for so long. It's a well-oiled machine. Why would I go out and do something on my own? Nobody's going to listen to me. But my mom was like, they ain't trying to listen to you either, so you might as well do it. And when I did it, she was right. It was the best thing I ever did because everybody was having the same issue and the same complaint Mm -hmm. about not seeing themselves not meeting another black person because it took me two years to meet another black person in person that had MS. Wow. And I, and there's so many people that have MS that are black and it took me two years. And some people said 20, 15 like years that never, they never met anybody because they thought nobody else had it because they weren't finding community. Right. And it's like, who do you swap resources with if you don't have anyone that's listening to you, if you don't have anyone that looks like you and can relate to what you're going through as a Black woman? 
It's it's different. It's a different experience. Right. And I and I will always use this example even to like, you know, to the MS society. Like if I take one medicine and this medicine is prone to cause hair shedding or hair loss. Mm-hmm. But there are certain shampoos that help because of the chemicals in it that help it not work. I'm not talking to a white woman about shampoo. I'm talking to a black woman, you know, because yeah. she takes the same medicine as me and we could talk about the shampoos because of, right. you know, because we could talk about hair. It's, right. just, it's small things like that. I mean, that's kind of a big thing, but it's still a small thing. Like if you're not, you're not thinking about that. We're not the same. My community, my culture, we do things this way. We have these shared experiences and just lingo. I, I want to talk to my people. And it's already such an uncertain thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be some even ground, some shared shared experience. I'm glad your mom was at that meeting. It made you do what you needed to do. Yeah. That's huge. Before we get into the birth of We Are Elmatic, I wanted to ask you at the beginning, what did it feel like when you had to share or when did you open up to share with other people that you, you had this disease? I think I was a unicorn. And my job actually flew me home, bought me a flight and everything for like a week or something. My immediate family knew. And then once I went to the doctor and they gave me a nurse, nurse would come to my house and help me administer my medicine. And once I had my like maybe first or second meeting with my nurse, I just posted on social media. And a part of it was because I didn't want to be embarrassed about it. And I felt like if I'm about to go through this, all y'all going through this. <laughs> like, if I'm about to have a nurse, y'all about to have this nurse. Like, y'all y'all going to know what's going on. I'm not about to sit here in secret. Because I know a lot of people that would be going through stuff. And it's no problem if you want to keep it mm-hmm. private. And I think it was more so, too. Like, this is now a part of my life and how I move, how I operate. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not about to, it's just like how people, when they get a new boyfriend or a new boo, they like, don't post the boo. Right. Like, no, I, I can't live like this. You can be in the background of my pictures. I'm not about to, it's extra work to right. hide it. Then it is live your life. Yeah. So, so I was just like, okay, just here, here it goes. And I think, you know, I wanted to be loved on and I wanted the support of the people that I love. And at this time, I didn't have a large following or anything, but it was mostly people that I knew. But it ended up being the best decision ever because it started to open doors up for people to introduce me to people. And people were like, people were introducing people to me like, hey, my cousin got diagnosed. I know you have it. Can you talk to her? Kind of thing. And it ended ended up finding this village. So that's how I told people. And even with dating, if I dated somebody, I told them up front or they already knew because of Instagram. And it was so easy because they could already make mm-hmm. that choice. It's a lot that comes with it, being someone's partner. So why not allow them to choose what they want to do up front? So that was my take mm-hmm. on it. I love that. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> uh, so then you you started We Are Elmatic. When did that start? How did it come to be? So I was brewing this idea like what do I want to do what is it is it going to be a nonprofit? is it going to be a support group is it going to be a this like wh- I didn't really know how to structure it I knew it was needed and I knew all of them would work but I didn't really know what I wanted mm-hmm. to do with it so originally I was like I do not want to do a nonprofit because 
that is a lot of work and it's a business with no with little money and it's a lot of work to get money and then in the beginning I was just out here like being this person who had meth and showing people my experience and stuff like that and people were flocking to me and you know it was so scary at times people would can call me I would be the first person they talked to after they oh got my diagnosed. God. and I would be like this is a lot of weight you know this is very heavy it's, I don't it's, I have to be very careful with my words because they just got diagnosed today and they're talking to me and they haven't even told their mom. Wow. So it just started to get like, <laughs> like this is a lot of people that I was managing and having to talk to and stuff like that, which wasn't a bad thing. It just was, it was like a lot of people. And I'm like, okay, we all need each other. So once I started, it was 2017. I was like, okay, this is the year that I'm going to flesh out whatever mm-hmm. this is. Um, so out of fear, I wanted to just stick my toe in the water, not my whole foot. <laughs> and um, I was like, I'm going to do a campaign. I'm a, you know, a brand marketer. Let me just use my creativity and do what I do best and come up with mm-hmm. a campaign. So inspired by Nas. Um, so I've seen this like Illmatic album, but something one day resonated like Illmatic. Oh my God. It has the word ill, like yeah. sick. And I could your play on words with that so I had an intern named Nigel whom I love and he was great he was um, over the summer working with me from Boston and he helped me flesh out the whole campaign and the campaign you know was we are romantic and since I live in LA and I know a lot of people that work in the industry and entertainment and stuff I've managed to get in contact with his with Nas's Whoa. manager um, and got permission to use the Ill, you know, it was we are Illmatic, but it was still Illmatic, you know? So I got his blessing. And after that, I was like, let's go. So I basically did something where it kicked off August 14th. And I started doing video content and the videos. They're on YouTube, but they would just be like promotional mm-hmm. videos, introducing ourselves. And then the campaign was drawing attention to get people, to get Black women to join our online mm-hmm. support group. And the online support group still lives on Facebook. I have over a thousand black women that have MS on there. And people just started flocking to it. And we got so much press. I couldn't believe it. And Nas even posted the video, my video on wow. his Instagram. So it just kind of worked mm-hmm. out. It was just creative. And like, if you look up, I'm sure you know, but any medical condition, these websites are very yeah. bland, very sad. Yeah. So I was like... I don't want to be sad every time I'm reading about this. I need to read about it in a way that I'm uplifted or motivated or something. So that's basically the story behind it and the birth behind it. And I never would have imagined that it would have done what it did. But I'm so glad that I did it. (laughs) I'm so glad that I was able to provide a solution to the problem that so many people had, which was just connecting with like-minded people and then as of this year I finally did turn it into a nonprofit <laughs> organization <laughs> and instead of we are illmatic it's called we are mm-hmm. ill so we are illmatic is still alive that's the that's the hashtag that's the vibe yeah. you know that's the yeah. tribe but we are ill is the actual name of the nonprofit as of this year we've got a lot of things in the pipeline and it's just been really cool it's it's just so crazy how it all Yeah, I'm so excited for it to grow. And obviously, you feel the void of this community that didn't have 
a place to gather, a place to swap notes. And so I can only imagine how rewarding that feels. And it's like, you might've started in 2017, but it's only going to get better and bigger. It's just nice to hear your journey through it. Um, Your water could break during this interview. (laughs) (laughs) How has it felt navigating your pregnancy, not only considering your MS, but with everything going on on in the world from COVID to Black Lives? And so I just wanted to see how you've been coping and how you've been working through it. You know, (laughs) something about me, I never have this smooth, easy, quick way. My journeys are typically always tumultuous Mm -hmm. and I don't know why, but maybe it's to make me stronger or for me to consistently be an example. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm like the poster child for what you don't want to happen, but how you get through it. But so MS and pregnancy, when I got diagnosed, my second question to the doctor was, will I be able to have Mm -hmm. kids? I don't know why I wasn't trying to have kids at 25, but that was one of my questions because I I knew I wanted to be a mother. So it is something that's super top of mind when you get diagnosed young and you don't Mm -hmm. already have kids. One, your medicine, you can't take your medicine when you're pregnant. There's no medicine for MS on the market at all that you can take while pregnant or breastfeeding. So you do have to stop your medical therapy. So that's a concern of a lot of people, especially if you have a more severe case, like a primary progressive or secondary progressive. I don't have those, but you don't want your medication therapy to be interrupted. You're supposed to stay on it consistently to help keep your illness at bay. So that's one of the big concerns. When I got pregnant, a lot of people reached out like, you give me hope, I can get pregnant too. Even though, again, nothing... And MS tells us you can't have kids, but everybody's worried about it. So I was happy that people felt inspired by that, that they can get pregnant too. Another thing that a lot of people don't know about uh, MS and pregnancy is that the hormones of it, it helps your symptoms subside. So a lot of people, if they were having flare-ups, they don't have any flare-ups in pregnancy. Pregnancy is kind of like avoiding, dodging MS for a little bit. (laughs) But now as far as other stuff... (laughs) <laughs> That's been just unfortunate, you know, the pandemic, very scary. I felt like at the beginning it was the zombie apocalypse and I didn't know. I thought I was going to be in The Walking Dead and we were stocking up on food yeah. and it was just a lot. It was very scary and it's still very scary because right. it's not gone. And then rioting and protesting, that's been stressful because, you know, it's, It's not a new tune as far as what's happening with racial bias and police brutality and things like that. But it's just been a little bit disheartening. So I've just been really just um, being mindful of what I take in and what I consume. And I can break some social media and things like that because, you know, you just can't have that all day. I think we all need to be mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to everything in moderation because it's. Yeah, I was like, I want to stay informed. I want to know what's going on. Like, I wish I could protest, but I can't go out there. I'm like, I got to protect my peace. Yeah, I know. I think I felt super dejected just not being able to be with the masses and feeling like I'm on the sidelines. But you have to look out for number one and contribute in other ways, (laughs) you know. Um, 
Absolutely. On the subject of peace, what brings you peace? What brings me peace? So I've always felt, always since I was younger, not always easily able to identify, and not even now, but always felt like I was called to do something big or bigger or or tapped or special. I don't know. Something about me has been a seeker. I've always been curious and wanting more. And I knew that that wasn't for no reason. Mm-hmm. But I think I am a little bit programmed to overcome obstacles. And I'm happy that I have that because obstacles happen to all of us and they're going to continue mm-hmm. to. Whether it's tire or you lose your job, you know, just obstacles come. So I'm kind of trained to just keep it going. But what gives me peace is like knowing that I'm here for a reason. I have done great things, but I have so many more great things to come mm-hmm. out of me. And I think I'm like a vessel mm-hmm. in a way. And I'm not even saying it's going to be Nobel Peace Prize, you know, worthy, but I just feel like I have something to give and that is my job and service. So it gives me peace in knowing that like everything has worked out thus far. Like all the things that I thought weren't going to work out, it worked out in some way, even if it wasn't how I thought it would work out. Everything has worked out and I get peace from that. And when I said I was a seeker, I've been a seeker of peace because I haven't been at peace all the time. You know, I have been troubled and have felt anxiety because I'm a worrier. I'm like, give me any lucky rabbit's foot healing crystals. Give me. (laughs) So I pray, meditate, all those things. Like I want it all because anything to get me closer to peace, anything to get me closer to calm you know, to me is the better because we we all need it. So I think I've kind of leaned on that during all this time. And I guess when I get my daughter in a oh. few weeks or right now, that'll give me peace too, kind of knowing that I, you know, no matter what happens to me, I'm leaving something, yeah. you know, my yeah. gift. And I'm going to work hard to make sure she's a gift and not a terror. <laughs> but this is my this is my contribution you know hopefully that is another way of giving me peace too beyond ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me taylor camille a variety of the series artwork shared here and on our instagram at beyond ourselves are created by carmen johns and sierra hood my hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at and subscribe and share if you haven't already.